0: Each year, it seems like we all set goals at the beginning of the year. We call them New Year's resolutions. And that's an interesting word, resolutions. Right in the word, it has the word resolve, which if you're like me and you like to watch YouTube videos about people who are off by themselves in the wilderness, cutting down trees with hand saws and then building their own log cabin and hunting for their own food and they're self-reliant. Then words like resolve just trigger this happy place. But of course, I'm laying in my bed watching it on my iPad in Seaford. Uh, but, but nonetheless, there's just something so appealing about resolve and resilience and oh, self-reliance to go into the ring against someone who has resolve is to face your doom. It's a rugged word, isn't it? This word resolve, it kind of triggers for me the self-reliance. A man alone in the woods hunting his own meat, growing his own grain and grinding his own meal. And of course, growing his own beard. That has to be forging his own axe and sharpening his own blade. Uh, But here's the reality. Our willpower for all of our thought processes and little lists of to-do, to-do list, put this on today's to-do list. Oh, Oh, annual to-do list, which is essentially what our New Year's resolutions are, an annual to-do list. Uh, We're a lot weaker than we give ourselves credit, and (laughs) how many of us by February, the treadmill is dusty and now it's a home to a stack of boxes? It has succumbed to the, wo- to the law of flat surfaces. I have a friend named Tim Woods. He's an agricultural economist. Econ- he does stuff with numbers having to do with farms. And he coined the Tim Woods law of flat surfaces. It's like Murphy's law. If something can go wrong, it will. Well, Tim Woods law of flat surfaces is if it's a flat surface, it will soon be full of items. Period. And so now it's February and the treadmill is full of a stack of boxes. The extreme diet that you should never have attempted because it flies in the face of any kind of wisdom, but you are sure it's gonna work, so you whole hog that one. That one isn't nearly as fun as sitting down, holding still, and eating Cheez-Its at 10 p.m. Your plan to read through the whole Bible in a year, starting with Genesis, has kind of trickled off somewhere around Leviticus again. Wow, you sound really cynical, Tim. <laughs> well, actually, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, actions do reveal priorities. And whatever gets our time and gets our money gets us. And the weight of the heart is through the hands, right? Not just sentiment, but activities. And I do believe that self-control is a fruit of the spirit. And I know that it takes about 31 days to form a a practice into a habit so that the brain creates new neural pathways. And then from the place of habit, it can actually become an element of our character. And if it's an element of our character, it will actually produce automatic responses so that it's easier to do the right thing that we now have learned to do than the wrong thing that we used to do. I believe all that. And I'm grateful that Once a year, we take a step back and take stock of our lives, evaluate the previous year, what we did like about it, what worked, what we did not like about it, what did not work. I like that we take a step back and evaluate our fitness, our health, our relationships, our spirituality, our work, our work-life balance, our hobbies. I think that's a very, very good practice. And sometimes we discover that we're actually on the train, but not going where we got on the train to go anymore. We stopped being travelers going somewhere and we are now simply passengers that are riding who knows where. We're just on the train. Sometimes we discover that we're not fully awake. It was Socrates who said that the unexamined life is not worth living. There was another Greek philosopher who lived several hundred years before Jesus in the city of Ephesus. His name was Heraclitus. And he said that most people are just sleepwalking through life and they really don't want to be awakened and that if you take it upon yourself to wake them up, you will bring pain into your life. They prefer their diversions to the pain and discomfort of actually listening to what he called the Logos that is attempting to speak to us through everything through life's pleasures and through life's pains but most of us he said are happy with our deception he said the poets just give people pretty lies that suit their fancy so the poets should be publicly beaten (laughs) I love that guy and then he had this fun quote He was in the city of Ephesus where later John would be a pastor. And it's interesting to me that John, the Apostle John, uses the word logos throughout his writings. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. Interesting. Same word that this philosopher, Heraclitus said of that same city, Ephesus, where later John would be a pastor, good people No, no, we don't have good people. We don't suffer them. We've kicked them all out of town. We don't tolerate good people around here. They mess with our sleepwalking. I like that guy. Sarcastic and uh, negative on human nature, but deep down coming from a really good place because he genuinely believes that we were made for more and we can find the more and we can live in the more. So New Year's resolutions, There are a great way of asking ourselves if we are sleepwalking through life. They're a great way of us asking, am I supposed to be on this train that I'm on? I saw a feller t- talk about uh, most of us in life look over at our neighbor to see, and I don't mean the guy living next to you, just the, per- the people around us. We look over at our neighbor and we see what they're doing and we assume that's probably what we should be doing. So if he's setting up a ladder to crawl up to the top of the ladder, we go, oh, and we start setting up a ladder to crawl to the top of our ladder. And then you get to the top of the ladder and you realize, I have no idea why I'm up here. And I've gotten really, I've spent the last 15 years getting really good at climbing up ladders. But why? Imagine spending your life getting really good at something you were never designed to live for. And that's a pretty good description of most of us. So my friend Aram says that we should have a ton of midlife crises over and over. I said, what are you talking about, Aram? And he says, well, I believe in having my midlife crises early and often. About every five years, I should have a midlife crisis. Why save it up and waste 20 years when you could just waste a few years and then make the course correction? So New Year's resolutions are really about us reassessing our priorities And of course, for a priority to matter, you have to actually have a plan, right? A dream without a plan is just basically a cute little idea. I like to say, okay, if it's not in the calendar, it isn't real yet. So put it in the calendar. Put it in the daily calendar. How you spend your days is how you spend your life. So if your average day, evaluate your routine. And if your average day doesn't have you doing what you are claiming your purpose on the planet is, you're a liar. Come on, man. Simple. It's not actually as complicated. It's just hard. So here's a few of mine. Be funny in public. If you know me in real life, I can't help myself, I'm always cracking jokes. It's not as true of me online. So why am I different online than I am in real life? Got to work on that. Number two, be more intellectually vulnerable in public and give thorough and careful answers to the important questions that come up. I hold back, y'all. Years of rejection have rendered me a different man than you first met 10 years ago. That has to be approached with effort. Forcing myself to continue to be myself in public. There's a whole speech there called be yourself dot, dot, dot in public. Okay, so number one, be more funny in public. Number two, be more intellectually vulnerable, giving thorough and complete answers. Number three, be more driven by eternity because... I'm living in light of my mortality. Now I'm 40, what am I? 42. But for some reason the last 3 months I cannot stop thinking about my mortality. And I don't know if if it's that I opened up a box in my mind and I can't close it. It hasn't been harmful. I think it's really healthy. Isn't it Moses who said, teach us to number our days aright, that we might gain a heart of wisdom? Psalm 90. Yeah, I know what it was, too. It was the sermon when I, when I yelled at y'all and said, children, you're going to die. We're going to stand around your grave telling testimonies. And then we're going to walk back into the church and we're going to laugh, wipe away our tears, and we're going to eat potato salad. That sermon messed me up. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I prayed a dangerous prayer. Lord, can you make it about eternity again? And I haven't, haven't, haven't been able to shake it. So here's the thing about New Year's resolutions. You can't just put a bunch of stuff on a list that you go, hey, that's a good idea. Because come on, stop kidding yourself. You don't live head first. Right? Like when I was pretending like I was deciding whether I was going to marry Carrie, I made lists on a piece of paper and I had the pros on the one side and the cons on the other. You know what that kind of nonsense is that we do with our head, that we do with our brain? That's just treading water while your heart is is still processing. Because you're going to make that decision with your heart, not your head. Some of you are like, not me, I made a rational decision, and it was a wise partnership, and the two of us are congenially partnered together, and this concept of romantic love is a Greek and pagan idea. I'm rolling my eyes over here, and I'm going, like, I'm real concerned about your marriage, bro. <laughs> Holy moly. <clears throat> and, merit and love is a choice. You're scaring me, bro. It's You want someone with character, but you also want to have chemistry because if you have chemistry and character, you're going to have some fireworks and it's going to last. But if you don't have character and you don't have chemistry, help us, Lord Jesus. Now you're going to be one of these people whose Facebook posts all talk about how love is hard work and you've made it to 50 years and it's been real hard. And I'm going to be like, oh, it's not supposed to be that hard. It's going to be real hard. If you do it that way, we are way off topic. Let's get back on topic. Priorities, New Year's resolutions. See, there's another rabbit trail I want to go down, but I'm going to snip it. Nope, we ain't doing it. The New Year's resolutions reveal our priorities. And what I'm trying to say is it doesn't work to just put things on the list that seem like, hey, that's cool. It actually has to come from a deep place. So you're not going to do it. Come on, you're not going to do it because it's going to require sacrifice. You're talking about changing your life. And if you don't want it, I mean, really want it, then you're fighting against yourself. You know, you ever carried a baby around for hours and hours and hours? If it were a sack of flour, you'd put it down because even the smallest weight gets extremely heavy over time. So even the smallest life change can be extremely heavy over time if you don't really value what you're you're dealing with here. So let me just lay down one priority. Whatever else is on your New Year's resolution list, let me just tell you what I hope is on everyone's. Top priority, number one, highest resolution of any resolution that you could have. You already know what I'm gonna say. It's the priority of seeking God. God. Not some vague, generic idea of put God first. No, 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 the real practical, tangible thing of actually seeking God first every day. As a practice, first thing you do every day, what if, what if it was to seek God? Not the priority of seeking God once a day at some point along the day, but seeking God first every day. Because you know how it works if you don't. Almost seek God tonight at 10 p.m. Well it, I'm tired. I'll give God the leftovers. You know what I'm saying? The priority of seeking God. God says through Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with Jeremiah 29, 13. You'll search for me and find me when you look for me with all your heart, all your heart. So y'all who knows God? Someone who has a casual interest in knowing God. Someone who's vaguely interested in spirituality. Someone who gives God a tenth of their money in a morning once a week. No, come on, y'all. That's a great way to go to hell. Just hell with a little religion sprinkled on, right? Just a little Jesus sprinkled in. That's not that's not Christianity. It's not, that's a Jesus inoculation. That's just enough Jesus so you don't catch the real thing. You remember Keith Green? Going to church don't make you a Christian anymore than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Sorry, Keith, that's not how your voice really sounds. He's like, you're darn right. Of course, no one here thinks going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, but it'd be nice if after church somebody brought me a hamburger. <laughs> you get my point, right? Jeremiah, you will you'll find me When? You seek me with all your heart. All is a weird word, isn't it? Well, surely he doesn't mean all. Oh, he he does? What would that even look like? What kind of passion does that include? You ever done something extremely half-heartedly? Yeah, I have. I remember in India when (laughs) we had this one song that... Everywhere we went, they wanted us to sing, and it was called the happy song. And they were like, oh, yeah, play the happy song again. That was one we liked, so we'd play the happy song. Do you remember the story I'm talking about? That one, There's a pastor's conference, and they fed them with these huge. And we were the band, and they let us up there, and we were singing the happy song. Everybody's singing now because we're so happy. I remember being so angry singing that. Because they made me sing it like seven times that I screamed like, we're so happy. And then like, <laughs> and this one pastor's looking at me and he's like, shame on you. And I was like, I don't even feel ashamed. I'm still just mad. I'll feel ashamed later. <clears throat> that, my heart was definitely not in it, not in it. But in life, we tend to find what we're looking for sincerely, what we're sincerely looking for. Should I say it again? In life, we tend to get what we most want to find. In fact, what's crazy is you can look at the data and not even see the data. You'll see what you want to see in the data. You tend to find what you most are interested in finding in life. And if you're most interested in finding God in life, the Bible's very clear and repeatedly you'll find him. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, to ask, seek, and knock. His disciples are like, teach us how to pray. So he tells a story about a guy who has a guest show up late at night. And because he doesn't have anything to give the guest, he goes and knocks on the neighbor's door, bothers him, wakes him up because he refuses to quit. He refuses. <laughs> That's embarrassing. I'm, like, I'm the guy who's like, well, I'll just not challenge that. That would be awkward. Oh, uh, you charge me too much money. Oh, well, here's 20 extra bucks. I don't want to be. That, that's literally oh, that would be socially awkward. I'll just put up with it, no problem. Willing to wake your neighbor and get him out of bed? And, the, and Jesus says, This is how I want this is how you this is how you ought to be when you pray. You ought to pray with passion, tenacity, serious, open-hearted desire. Remember the Old Testament story where the prophet comes to the king and says, here, take these arrows and strike them on the ground. So he hits them on the ground three times and he's like, this is supposed to be a symbol of you defeating, of, of the Lord's people, defeating the Lord's enemies and you only struck them on the ground three times. What are you thinking? If you'd have struck them on the ground like five or six times, we would have utterly defeated the enemies. But as is, we're only gonna halfway beat them and you're gonna be, you're gonna be in trouble for years and years and years. And you go, what's the point, Tim? He did it half-heartedly, it was, it was, but it was just a symbolic action. Yeah, and the Lord took his lack of passion. The Lord took his lack of passion in that symbolic action so seriously that he treated it as a prophecy to be fulfilled. The amount of passion when you when your, when your heart is going after the Lord, the amount of desire and seriousness and passion massively determines the fruit, the outcome. Interesting, half-hearted prayer gets half-hearted answer. And I'm not talking about drumming up fake passion. That's not, that's not my point. But the priority of seeking God Tangibly, daily, first. And, and I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and, and we got onto all sorts of things. Like how have I drifted so far from God and how did my worldview get, how did I get to this place where I now affirm things that used to grieve me and I'm like pleased by things. My worldview is so different from what it used to be. And I, and I talked about the importance of having, developing a an ability to pay attention to those yearnings of her soul. I I talked about the importance of beginning to verbalize and communicate with God in a relationship. Talk out loud to God. Talk out loud to God. Talk out loud to God. Learn to say things that you mean, even if they aren't safe, even if they aren't biblical, even if they are full of doubt, even if they're thorny, Learn to say what you genuinely mean. Maybe let the Bible wash over you and read it out loud, even though you don't like it, even though it offends you, even though you think it's socially regressive and culturally regressive and morally regressive. It's an old-fashioned, offensive book. Let it offend you. Those parts of the Bible that offend you are the most important parts of the Bible of all. Because those are the parts where you're revealing your disagreement with the Lord or your misunderstanding of his word. One of those. And then I said, so talk, learn to get in touch with your soul and talk honestly to God with no one around out loud. Learn to let the book trouble you and read it out loud. And then also hang out with a crappy church. Find a crappy church. Stop wasting your time with the idolatrous stupidity of trying to find a good church. Stop that. Stop that. That's total selfishness. Find a crappy church near you and go there and learn to love those people and learn to find God at work there. Learn to find Jesus. Bring him a good worship experience, right? Flip the whole thing on its head. So be a part of an imperfect, crappy community. Find some people that stink who are just trying, like you. Join that. And I stood back from the conversation. I realized, what advice did I just give this, this gal? I just told her to read her Bible, pray, and go to church. Huh. And it all felt very cutting edge. Because it was exactly what she needed to be doing, not knowing, not thinking about, not having as an idea, doing, doing. Seeking God as like the first priority. It, this is a wild proverb. I'm not even sure why, it's, why it speaks to me so much, but. When we seek God and God becomes our first priority, then we begin to evaluate everything by how it affects our soul's grasp of the Lord. Everything, everything. By, by, not, we, don't, we don't ask the question like, what does somebody else think about this behavior? We're actually evaluating how everything is affecting my contact point with God. Here's what I, I'll give you a terrible example. Like I'm a baby Christian, baby Christian. I don't know anything yet but I noticed that when I smoked pot that it messed with my connection to God. No Christian came to me. There was no Bible verse. There was no guilt, none of that. And the Lord wasn't even mad at me. But it messed with my connection to the Holy Spirit, and I said, I guess I won't do that anymore. And I never did, not once. Interesting. What if for you watching baseball messes with your connection with God. But there's no Bible verse about it, so you're gonna keep on doing it to your hurt. And for me, baseball's totally awesome. I just watch, I can, that's fine. That's great, let's go. You're, you have to pay attention to your relationship, but you have to measure everything else in your life by your relationship to the Lord. And you need to learn to pay attention to how things are affecting your soul's grasp of the Lord. Is this increasing my grasp of the Lord? Is this making me, am I falling more in love with the Lord? Or is this dulling my senses? One time I had a conversation with somebody and they were like, Man, these hypocrites, they don't understand how the Lord's so good that I'll never fall away. They don't understand. They're judging me for getting drunk. I sat for a while thinking, Well, I think you've misunderstood the point I was making this morning with my sermon because I had gloried in the grace of God in the sermon. And he's like, that was a good word. That's what I'm talking about. These judgmental Christians judging me for getting drunk. I'm totally awesome. I'm saved. None of that affects my walk with God negatively. So I was like, okay, Lord, how do I respond? And then he kind of dropped, the Lord kind of just dropped some stuff into my heart for him. And I said, um... Let me tell you why I'm real concerned about what I'm hearing you say right now. A heart that's in love with the Lord is asking, how can I please the Lord? Not what can I get away with. How can I please the Lord? A heart that's led by the Spirit is, is literally aiming for perfection. Not out of legalism, but because you're in love with Jesus, you want to please Jesus. You want to bring a smile to his face. And you're not asking what you can get away with. When you're asking what you can get away with, I, like I guarantee you're being motivated by what the scripture calls the flesh. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I, you, I don't think you fell away either. I just think you're grieving the Holy Spirit. I don't think you need to get saved again. I don't think people fall in and out of the Christian life. I don't think that. I once knocked on the door of a girl. We were asking for prayer requests. And and we're like, do you know the Lord? And she's like, oh, yeah, I've been saved like three times. And I wanted to be like, well, that's theologically, that's heresy and false and stupid. But I didn't say any of that. You just smile and you say, okay, wonderful. And then you pray. I suppose you could say that. You could say, that's heresy and you're dumb. Not helpful. That wouldn't be helpful. But you don't, no, you, don't, you don't fall in and out of salvation. That's not how this thing works, right? Once you're in, you're very, very much more in than a lot of people know. In fact, once you get the Jesus virus on your computer, there's whole theological arguments by the computer technicians about whether you can even get the thing off. Like, you can try really hard. It's really hard to get rid of that Jesus virus when it takes hold of a heart. You can work really hard and live long in sin, And still find yourself going, I'm more miserable now in sin than I ever was before. Oh, I know. Because now you're grieving the Holy Spirit. There's no one more miserable than a sinning Christian. Because you're sinning against your deep heart now. Because your heart's been transformed. And it wants to wake up in the morning and drink and feast of the goodness of God. And if you don't do that, part of you is worse off than before you met him. This sounds cheerful. The priority of seeking God, check this out. Everything being measured by the priority of my grasp of God. Listen to, this, listen to this fascinating verse in Proverbs. Two things I ask of you, Lord, don't refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me. That's the first. And the second is this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Who's, who's noticed this verse in Proverbs 30 before? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. And look at what, look, look at his motivation. Look what he says. Why? Why? Or I may become poor and steal. I'm, I'm flipping it. Or I may have too much. So he starts with the rich first. I may have too much and disown you and say, eh, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So in both cases, his concern, his reason for asking, I just want enough. I just want my daily bread. Which, like, you want to know, like, you ever notice Jesus give us our daily bread? You know where he got it? He read his Bible, y'all. He's not making it up. He's in a community with ancient wisdom. So God, don't let me have too much, because then I'll forget you. I'll be tempted. It doesn't mean I'm guaranteed to forget you if I'm rich. Like right, Paul tells Timothy to teach the rich those who are rich in this world not to trust in their wealth, which is such a snare, so deceptive, but instead to be very generous to store up treasures in heaven. There's a way to do it. It's really hard because it takes radical generosity. But you can have the love of money if you're in poverty too. Love of money can go in both of those extremes. One, you think it's gonna save you and so you grasp your hand out and take it. And the other one, you trust in it and forget the Lord. But in either case, his prayer is, my relationship with money is 100% about how it affects my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife, 100% how it relates my relationship with God, my relationship with my kids, my reputation, my job, my hobbies, my health, everything measured with reference to how it impacts my relationship to God. There's this interesting, if you look at David when he was young, off by himself with the sheep, right? Seeking God, forgotten, overlooked, lonely, ignored. He's a nobody from nowhere, but not to God. Not to God. To God He's the one. Why? Because his heart, his heart of worship, his sincere heart of faith, his sincere heart of intimacy was formed off in the fields. And then he goes on the run, right? Like he gets the promise he's going to be king, but instead of becoming king right away, it's like 14 years of being hunted and chased, and he's hiding in caves, and he's among the foreigners and he's pretending to be insane and letting his spit drip out of his face, and those and and all the other rejects flock to David, right? Those who were in debt, those whose families didn't like him, those who who had a hard history and probably made bad choices and have demonstrated a lack of character. They gathered to Jesus and he became their king. He became their ruler. I love it. I love it. David on the run with his ragtag group of dudes who could go down into a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion. His ragtag group of crazy people. I love it. And on the run, when he's being hunted, when he's young and he's alone and lonely and ignored, and his life's going nowhere, he has intimacy with Jesus. And when he's hiding in caves with the criminals, he has intimacy with the Lord. But he gets into his palace and we read that in the time of the year when the kings go to war David is at home he sent other people to go fight his battles while he sits and while he's there where he shouldn't be he looks out and sees Bathsheba because he's not fighting the battle he's called to he ends up losing a battle he should have never had to fight Why is it so much harder to navigate ease, comfort, and blessing than trouble? There's the Judges Cycle in the Old Testament. It's called the Judges Cycle because if you read through the book of Judges, it's a cycle. It just keeps repeating that the people of God get into sin, and then when they're in their, when they're in their mess, then they cry out to the Lord. The Lord has mercy, sends the Spirit on some deliverer, And then he delivers them from their enemies and they're finally restored to a place of peace again. And then what happens? Then they forget the Lord. Once the trouble's gone, once the threat is over, they forget the Lord, go back into sin, and then they cry out, it's the judges cycle. And it's so frustrating. And it makes me say, not makes me, it causes me to reflect. I don't like those kinds of, I'm trying to cut inaccurate lying language. She made me angry. No, she doesn't have the authority to make you angry. You chose to become angry. It causes me to reflect and say, what if though, what if, what if we could keep our focus both through good times and bad? What if we could stay diligent? What if we could stay hungry for the Lord? What if we could stay focused and passionately seek the Lord? Have you ever checked through the Bible, just the blessings for those who seek the Lord, The blessings for those who know, walk with, obey, and honor the Lord, they're crazy. They sound like exaggerations. Then you add the New Testament. You go, yeah, but what about persecution and cross-bearing? I know. I agree. I know. But in the midst of all the hard stuff, if you seek the Lord, you find the Lord. And if you find the Lord, you know the Lord. And in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore and whoever looks to him is radiant, and those that wait on him will renew their strength. Come on. Like, there's so much. What if, guys? What if? What if? Yeah, 2020, oh, 2020 was bad. 2020 was hard. I know. I know. It caused some people, though, to dig down a little deeper and evaluate some things. My hope is, let's say if 2021 is supposedly so much better, Let's not let up the gas on seeking the Lord. Seeking God, the priority of seeking God. So, whatever else is on our list of priorities for 2021, I'm trying to make at least the small case that seeking God deserves to be the first priority. When that shifts, it really does shift everything else. So, I have time to talk a little more. It's exciting. Fine, I will then. There's, there's two things that really burden my heart for the church in, in the United States right now. Number one is pleasing the Lord and number two is representing the Lord as missionaries. I feel like a lot of us get seduced by the tribal war that's happening. And I, you could say in the media, that's fine. But really what it means is in the public consciousness. There's this public consciousness, right? Out here where we all have access and have a conversation happening. And it seems to me that we Christians make these public alliances with one group or another and end up and end up being more identified with a political group than with the mission of Jesus. And I'm not going to work the whole thought out for you today, but I will put it this way. The Pharisees were the conservatives of Jesus' time, and the Sadducees were the liberals of Jesus' time. And they pretty much Missed it, both of them. Let's just smile real big. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm saying be super careful what your hope is in and what you're drawing identity from. Because if your hope isn't in Jesus, but in a political party, you will be very willing to judge, condemn, and demonize those who disagree with you on the other side. And then you'll be the worst missionary you could be. And your primary role here is to know, love Jesus and radiate love to liberals and to conservatives and to Christians and to atheists and to Buddhists and to unbelievers and to who cares, whatever they believe, it doesn't matter what they believe. Jesus died for them. He loves them. He has a wonderful heart of love for them and our thing is to not put stumbling blocks in their way of getting to know him. So vote, that's great. Vote your conscience. Vote your biblical ethics. Wonderful. But also, don't say anything that would drive people away from Jesus. Please, please, I'm begging you. Least of all, online. Does anyone... is any. Does anyone wish to speak with me further about the matter? Please do. I would love that. Again, I'm not saying don't be a conservative. I'm not saying don't be a liberal. Whatever you're convinced of, be that. But don't be that first. Be a Christian first. Be surrendered to Jesus first. Belong to the, your citizenship should not first and foremost be an American. When you got in the water, you became an American at least second. And a Christian first, right? I think it would be interesting. Let's take God out of the equation just for a second. What if we were Americans first, Republicans and Democrats second or third? I'm watching our country, the, the foundations of democracy crumble. It reminds me of like the whole church story of the, the dude who was against um, pipe organs or something. And the church wanted to buy a pipe organ he vociferously disagreed at the, at the meeting. We're not going to park pipe organ. they are terrible and they're not the Lord. Acapella only. And then he lost the vote. When they went around to pick up the money to buy the organ, he gave more than anyone else. And they said, but you're not even for the organ. And he goes, I know I'm not for the organ, but I'm for this church. And if this is the will of the church, I'll see it done. I just, just imagine, just imagine if we had that attitude and you go, well, not when this is at stake. And I probably agree with you, to be honest with you about whatever this is, but let's just be thinking worship and mission first as we engage the issue of politics. All right. Let's not let politics erode our love for people.